Amen. If you have your copy of scripture, I want to invite you to turn to Paul's letter to the Romans. We are beginning this morning, as I noted, a new sermon series on Paul's great letter to the Romans. It is, without contention, the greatest book in the Bible. If you have never spent much time in Romans, I would encourage you to do so. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great, who is said to be the greatest preacher in the English-speaking Western world, uh, preached 371 sermons on Romans between October of 1955 and the spring of 1968, 13 years almost, 12 and a half years. Um, on Friday evenings, Lloyd-Jones engaged in a sermon series. He would not finish it And he speculated that the Lord did not let him finish it, but took him away when he had bad health because of some species of pride that he sensed inside him. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not coming to this with any pride, (laughs) because I don't want to die before this is over. (laughs) Neither am I going to preach 371 sermons on this over 12 years. Um, We are probably going to be in this for about a year and a half to two years, so we're going to move a lot quicker. But I would encourage you, if you are looking for something to listen to, those sermons by Lloyd-Jones are um, on that website devoted to him, and they are rich, and would encourage you as you study through this as we go through, if you have time to be listening to some of those. We're looking this morning at Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Lloyd-Jones preached 13 sermons on these seven verses, and you're going to get one, just one. So I'm going to use him always to remind you how gracious I am to you, how kind I am to you, and how much you don't have to forbear with me. So we're looking at Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, this great letter Paul is writing. It is estimated by scholars that he is writing this in Corinth while he is on his way to Jerusalem. Paul had never made it to Rome at this point. He tells us at the end of this book in chapter 15 that he had longed to come there, but had been hindered, that he had never been there. He had never met these believers, and yet he was the great apostle to the Gentiles, and he had a burden that he could bring a blessing to this church and to these people as foremost apostle that God had appointed to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. And so as such, Paul now opens this letter with these words, Paul, a servant or a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised before through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, And was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God, And called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades. 
but the word of God endures forever. Well, as I have already noted, this letter is, without any argument, the greatest letter in Scripture. It is the weightiest. It is uh, one of the lengthiest. It is the richest. In a very real sense, the book of Romans helps us understand better than any letter what the gospel is. Um, it was the letter to the Romans that God used to bring about the conversion of some of the greatest theologians in the church. You probably know the story of Augustine, that 4th century theologian, one of the greatest Christian minds in the Christian church. And Augustine had dabbled in Manichaeism and then later Neoplatonism, all these philosophical thoughts. And he had a Christian mother, Monica, who you probably know prayed for his salvation often. And as he traveled around and he mused over what the meaning of life was, he was engaged in sexual immorality and all kinds of debauchery. And, and Augustine was wrestling internally deeply as he traveled the world. He was wrestling with what is the problem of evil. And as God was bringing him to the place where he was going to redeem Augustine, um, Augustine found himself grieved and heavy internally. Uh, he, he was wrestling with the question of evil and the, the problem of evil, and then he realized that he was the problem of evil. He said, I realized how crooked and sordid, bespotted and ulcerous I was. I looked and I loathed myself. Augustine was in a courtyard with his friend, Alepius, and he fell on the ground on his face right by his friend. He was in such agony over the wickedness of his heart and what he knew he was internally, what he was running from, but what he recognized himself to be. And as Augustine recounts, he fell down and Alepius was asking him if he was okay. And as he was pouring out his soul and loathing himself, he heard some children or a child crying, tole lege, take up and read, Take up and read. And so Augustine rose from the ground and he opened the Bible that he was holding and he opened it to Romans 13, 13, which says, let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And Augustine will say, I read no further. I didn't need to. Instantly, there infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty. The gloom of doubt vanished. He had come to know the Lord. And then many, many centuries later, an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther would have a similar experience. He'd be wrestling in his soul over his depravity, and he hated every time he read in Scripture that phrase, the righteousness of God, a phrase that is so prominent in the book of Romans. And Luther will say, I hated any reference to this because he believed that those references were God calling him to do better, to be better, to live a better life. And Luther knew that he couldn't do better. He knew that he couldn't live a better life. And yet, in 1515, two years before the Reformation, Luther was lecturing through Paul's letter to the Romans, and he came to understand, as he read Paul's letter to the Romans, as he read Augustine's treatise on the spirit and life 
and exposition of Romans, he came to realize that the righteousness of God was the free gift of God to sinners, that it was the imputed righteousness of Christ, that it was the way in which God accepts a sinful man or woman freely by his grace, apart from anything that we do. And Luther was converted, and the Reformation was fueled. And 200 years after that, there would be a very self-righteous for England, and he would be uh, going into a church one night, grieved in his soul, having a very similar experience to Augustine and to Luther. And he would hear someone reading the preface to Luther's commentary on Romans, and he would be converted that night. And his name was John Wesley. And there are many other stories of men and women in the history of the church when they have really listened to what Romans says, when they have really given themselves to a careful study of it, have come to know the Lord. I remember for me, in my experience, I was 24 years old. I was in a place much like Augustine, in darkness and depravity. And I, I remember knowing what Paul says in Romans 9, that God makes some to be vessels of mercy and some to be vessels of wrath. And I remember sitting outside of a restaurant where I was a, a chef, and I remember thinking, did God make me to be a vessel of wrath? And I didn't want to be, so I fled to Christ. Because that's the purpose of why God reveals that in Romans 9, is, is that we would go to the Lord Jesus, and that everything in this book would drive you to him. You know, Luther, in that preface to his commentary on Romans that Wesley heard, he says this at the very outset. Listen carefully. He says, this letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word, but to occupy himself with it daily, as though it were the daily bread of the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well, the more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes, the better it tastes. That's an awesome intro to a commentary on this book. And I would encourage you this morning as we enter in on this that you would give yourself to a very careful study of Paul's letter. Now, you know that Paul is writing this very basically and straightforwardly to the church in Rome. Um, Rome was the center of the world's power in that day. He is writing this letter to the church that finds itself surrounded by the greatest political power, a power that is extremely hostile to Christianity. And Paul is going to say very bold and confrontational things in this letter. In fact, I remember a number of years ago, there was debate about not leading with condemnation on the sexual immorality in our culture. And and one of my best friends said to me, I don't know, Paul walked right into the center of power in the Roman world and said homosexuality is idolatry and it is God giving people over to their sinful desires and judging them. And it is good for us to come to terms with the fact that unless we reckon with those bold statements about our sin, we will never see our need for Jesus Christ and we will never come to him. Paul is, Paul is setting out for us admirably a great statement throughout this letter about the need that all men and women have because we're all unrighteous. Paul will use those words, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Paul doesn't condemn one group over another. In chapters 1 through 3, he's going to go to the greatest length to say that all 
all have fallen short. That there is no partiality with God, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, slave and free. It doesn't matter that all need the saving grace of God in Christ. And that the gospel, he's going to say here at the outset, is for the nations. Now, I want us to consider this morning just three things. Sorry, I lied. Four things. Four things. This morning, as we look at these first seven verses, I want us to first consider the servant of the gospel. In verse 1, and then I want us to consider the source of the gospel in verses 2 and 3. And then I want us to consider the substance of the gospel in verses 3 and 4. And then I want us to consider the scope of the gospel in verses 5 through 7. The the servant, the source, the substance, and the scope of the gospel. Well, notice there in verse 1, the apostle opens this letter and he says, Paul a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, it's interesting. The apostle Paul, just like Augustine, just like Martin Luther, just like John Wesley, had a very radical conversion. Remember who the apostle Paul was in his upbringing. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had been brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, the greatest of the rabbinical teachers in Israel. He knew the law. There is speculation, and I I think it's probably substantiable, that Paul had the entire law of Moses memorized. And Paul will tell us in Philippians chapter 3 that when he considered his zeal for law-keeping, that... according at least to the external standard, that he was blameless, that he lived scrupulously according to the law, that he tried his best to do what was pleasing to God. And yet, the same man who sought to do those things and was so zealous in his self-righteousness hated Christians. You know... Paul is going to consent to the death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And it is altogether probable that what infuriated the Apostle Paul about Stephen more than anything and that drove him to consent to stoning Stephen was because in Stephen's testimony... He had such a grip of the scriptures and understood how they pointed to Jesus Christ so well that the apostle was jealous that God had given Stephen something he himself did not have. And so this enraged Paul in his self-righteousness. And you'll remember that Saul of Tarsus is moving down the Damascus road, and he has a singular purpose. He's dragging Christians out of prison, out of their homes and throwing them in prisons. He has letters. He is, he is targeting the Christians in, in that time period. And there on the Damascus road, the Lord Jesus interrupts the Apostle Paul and arrests the Apostle Paul. He blinds the Apostle Paul. He changes his heart. He commissions him to go from being the most zealous Jew being the apostle to the Gentiles. By the way, don't miss that. One of the greatest truths of the factuality, the the truthfulness of Christianity, is that God redeemed a Christian-hating Jewish zealot 
and made him the chief apostle to a people that by nature he would have hated. That's amazing. And Paul is here writing to a church that is heavily, um, heavily filled and inhabited with Gentile believers. There are Jews and Gentiles in this church. There are probably more Gentiles than Jews based on Paul's addresses at times. And yet notice how Paul thinks about himself. He thinks about himself as a servant of the gospel. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, that, that everything Paul thought about was how can I faithfully serve the Lord Jesus by spreading the gospel about Christ? I have one goal in life. I don't want to deviate from that. I don't want to get sidetracked from it. I want to make sure that I fulfill the task that the Lord Jesus gave me on the Damascus Road when he said, I am sending you to the Gentiles to preach the gospel, to call men and women out of darkness into, my, into the light of Christ, to set them free, all those who are being sanctified by faith in me, Christ says. And so the apostle sees himself as a servant, a slave of Christ. And notice, Paul doesn't take anything to himself. This is marvelous. Paul, Paul says he was called, called by God, called to be an apostle. He didn't, he didn't take this to himself. He didn't invent apostolic Christianity. He didn't decide to make something up like Mormonism. He, he is called by God. He is commissioned by God. He is sent by God. Remember, this is Paul who is going to say in Galatians, I wasn't taught the gospel by men. I didn't learn it from man. It was given to me by direct revelation of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus did a unique work in the Apostle Paul to make him the greatest of the apostles, the greatest penman of the revelation of the gospel the world has ever known. And yet Paul takes nothing to himself. Notice how he speaks about this in verse 1. He says that he is set apart for the gospel of God. Paul will elsewhere say that he recognizes that God set him apart from his mother's womb, that God created him for this end, that he is noting in this the divine purposes. He's noting that God is doing something, that this is God's work, that the gospel is God's gospel. And I want us to see this really secondly, very carefully here, the source of the gospel. Paul's going to hone in on this. He says that he is set apart by God, for the gospel of God. Notice how he speaks about the gospel. He calls it the gospel of God. It is the gospel that comes from God. God is the author of it. Listen to this. Robert Haldane, the great Reformed Baptist of the 19th century, said it is called the gospel of the grace of God, the gospel of peace, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of salvation, the everlasting gospel, the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Paul didn't make up this gospel. He's going to call it twice in this letter, my gospel. But by that, he means the gospel that I preached. And yet he tells us here that God is the source of it. Now, that's important because if we are ever going to understand the gospel, if I'm ever going to get my need for the gospel... I have to understand who is the author of the gospel. Um, notice Paul says there that we know that God is the source of the gospel because in verse 2, 
He tells us that God long ago promised before through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, there are going to be, I think, 70-some Old Testament quotes or allusions in this book. There's going to be a tremendous amount of background from the Old Testament. Paul, when he goes to defend justification by faith alone, is going to go back to Abraham. He's going to go back to David in chapter 4. He's going to go back further than Abraham and David to Adam in chapter 5. He's going to root everything he says about the gospel in the pages of the Old Testament. And that is so important because, as I said already, the Apostle Paul was a man before he was converted who was zealous for the Old Testament law of God. And yet, what is noticeably absent in this introduction is any reference to the law. Paul's going to bring that up later in this book in chapter 3, chapter 2, chapter 3. He's going to bring up the law and circumcision in chapter 4. He's going to bring it up again in chapter 7 and further in chapter 8 in contrasting the law with the promises of God. But what's remarkable about this is that the apostle is saying, God, having authored the gospel, ensured that you know that the gospel here now that Christ has come is not something new. It's not something that's been invented by men. It's not something that started in AD 33 or whenever Christ died. It's something that God promised long ago all the way back to Adam in the garden. Genesis 3.15. God says, I'm going I'm to send the woman and an offspring, a male offspring who's going to crush the head of the serpent. That's the gospel. Paul will say in Galatians 3 that the scriptures preach the gospel to Abraham. When God said, in your seed, who is Christ, all the nations are going to be blessed. That was the gospel. The gospel is everywhere in the Old Testament in types and shadows. You'll remember that great picture of the gospel when Israel has been bitten in the wilderness and they're dying by those venomous snakes and God tells Moses to to make the bronze serpent and put it on a pole and hold it up and whoever looks at it will be healed. And Jesus says, just as, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up on the cross that whoever believes in him will be saved. And we know that Christ is the rock from which the water came. We know that he's the manna that comes down from heaven. We'll hear tonight that he is the angel of the Lord who appeared to Abraham in the form of a man. he He is showing himself as the eternal son of God, as God in the flesh. He is showing himself before he comes as Christ through the womb of the virgin. And yet, Paul says God has promised this gospel. And this gospel was promised through the prophets in the scriptures. I remember hearing a sermon, I'm sorry, a testimony of a counselor, a Christian counselor named Rich Gans. Many years ago, Rich had grown up um, as a Jew in the Northeast and a very devout Jewish family. They went to synagogue every week. And he tells this account that he's walking through the mall. People don't go to the malls anymore. It was really popular back in the day, walking through the mall, lots of people. Somebody was there witnessing to people. There was a convention going on he happened to be at. Um, Someone said to him, you know, 
can we talk to you for a minute? And he knew he was going to get witness to, and he didn't want to. And he said this individual knew that he had grown up in a Jewish family. And he said that this man opened to Isaiah 53, but Rich didn't know where he was reading from. And he began to read those words. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was despised, he was rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, but we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And Gan said he was enraged inside and said to this individual, I don't want to hear about your New Testament or your Jesus. And he said that man turned the Bible around and showed him, he said, and it was Isaiah, the great prophet of the Old Testament. He said, and I was converted in that moment because I knew it was about Christ. That's what Paul's saying. God promised long before through the prophets in the scriptures, the gospel. Now, that opens for us the all-important question, what is the gospel? You know, I... I sometimes hesitate to ask groups of professing Christians this question because the answers are sometimes so bad. And that is such a tragedy because if there's one thing you should know how to define, it's the gospel. If you're a professing Christian, if there's one thing you should know how to articulate clearly, it is what the gospel is. And here, Paul is now going to give us the substance of the gospel. He's given us a cameo into the servant of the gospel, the source of the gospel. Now notice the substance. And he says in verse 3, concerning his son. Now, you, I hope, know know the word gospel means good news. And the question is, what is the good news? And Paul says here, very straightforwardly, the good news is the son. In a very real sense, Christ is the gospel. Everything about who he is, everything about what he did, the salvation that we have in him by his atoning death and his resurrection is the epicenter, it's the heart of the gospel. Um, John Calvin, listen to this. One of the great reformers moved by Paul's writing to Romans says right here, he says the whole gospel is included in Christ. So that if anyone removes one step from Christ, he withdraws himself from the gospel. Paul says, since Christ is the living and express image of the Father, it is no wonder that he alone is set before us as one to whom our whole faith is to be directed and in whom it is centered. Now, Let me say this this morning as we go through Romans. We're going to hear a lot about justification by faith alone in Christ alone. We're going to hear about sanctification in Christ. We're going to hear about adoption in Christ. We're going to hear about God's gracious election that brings us to Christ. We're going to hear about God's plan of reconciling Jew and Gentile in Christ. But let me say this this morning, none of those things in and of themselves 
are the gospel if they are removed from Christ himself. You see, we do not embrace the gospel by giving mere intellectual assent to true doctrines. We receive the gospel by believing on, trusting in, and being united to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that if someone says to you, what does it mean to be a Christian? You don't say, I believe in justification by faith alone, though it is vital that we believe that. But we say, I am trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only Savior of sinners, and I am united to him by faith alone. Because as Calvin says, if anyone removes one step from Christ, he withdraws himself from the gospel. Now, that means everything else we're going to see through Paul's letter to the Romans is going to be rooted in who Christ is and what he did. And as Martin Luther says, because let me say this this morning, there are many Christians who think, yeah, 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 I got that, I got that, this is boring. I want to, say, I want to read what Luther said again. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. And if that's not happening, there is something terribly wrong in your soul and in my soul. Because we can never meditate on Christ enough. We can never set our hearts and minds on him enough. We can never plumb the depths of him enough. We can never meditate enough on what he did for us on the cross. We can never think about his resurrection too much. We can never set our minds on what he's doing now at the right hand of the Father too much. We can never speak of him too much. We can never tell others of him too much. We can never write about him too much because Christ is the good news. And if I am seeing my need for good news, I am seeing my need for Christ. You know, the gospel is not, if you will do better, if you will try harder, God will receive you. That is not the gospel. And you know what's sad? Right now, right now, in many so-called churches all around us, all around this country and all around the world, that's what men and women are hearing. If you will just try to be a better person, that's what the gospel is. No, it's not. Tim Keller always says, and I love this, that may be good advice, but that's not good news. And you know how I know it's not good news? Because we don't even live up to our own standard, let alone God's standard. Every day, if you set your standard down here, you are failing. God's standard is perfection and sinlessness. We are not meeting that because we're not even meeting our own. And we don't need good advice. We need good news. Because we are sinners who deserve the wrath of God. And as Paul says, God is going to solve that problem of our unrighteousness by sending his son to be our substitute, to keep the law of God for us, to die the death we deserve to die, to rise victorious, to break the power of sin in our life, to unite us to himself. Now, listen, if we don't love to hear this, I'm going to say this as boldly as I can. If you don't love to hear this, you're not a Christian. And that means you're going to go to hell forever. And I'm sorry if you don't like to hear that. I would be remiss and I would fail on Judgment Day if I didn't tell you that. If you hate this, you are not a Christian and you need to flee to Christ. Because Paul's whole point in this is to get men and women who do not know Christ and those who do, both to go to him and to stay close to him. Now notice what he says. The substance of the gospel. Notice this. 
He says that the gospel concerns his son. He's going to tell us two things. One, who descended from David according to the flesh. And two, who was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now, if you go back in church history and you read theologians on these two verses, almost without exception, the better part of them are going to say, Romans 1, 3, and 4 teach that Jesus is God and Jesus is man. And that is true. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is truly God and truly man. There are two natures in the one person. When he came in the flesh, he came as the son of David, but he is the eternal son over all. And that's true. But I don't think Paul is just telling us about the two natures of Jesus when he tells us about the essence of the gospel here. Notice this. I think he's talking on the horizontal plane of what happens in redemption, redemptive history. And the two categories that Paul's setting out are the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. He's saying if you want to understand what the gospel is, it's about God's son and specifically about his humiliation, the son of David according to the flesh, and his exaltation, declared to be the son of God with power according to the resurrection of, from the dead by the spirit of holiness. And that's important. Because when we think about Christ and the gospel, we always have to think about him in those two stages. During his earthly ministry, he humbled himself. You know, our Westminster Shorter Catechism asked the question, wherein consists the humiliation of Christ? And the answer they give in the very first statement is, the humiliation of Christ consists in his being born. I don't know if you've thought about that. The humiliation of Christ doesn't start on the cross when he suffers and dies under the wrath of God for us. The humiliation of Christ begins with the eternal glorious son being born of a virgin. God over all who upholds all things by the word of his power, the God who gives to us right now life and breath and all things, the God who creates everything, who brings life from the womb, the infinite God came through the womb of a creature. That's the great humiliation. The infinite God came into this world through the, the womb of a woman he created. That's remarkable. And, and he came, Paul says, <clears throat> from David... According to the flesh. Now, listen very carefully. He's not just saying he took flesh. That's true. He's not just saying the eternal God took to himself a full human nature. He is saying that. But he's saying more. In scripture, the word flesh oftentimes denotes the weakness of this fallen world. Full of sinners. Full of misery. Full of decay. Full of hardships. This world that's been exiled from the presence of God. And he came in the fullness of time, Paul will say in Galatians. Born of a woman, born under the law. And Paul says here, according to the flesh. He entered into this world. Now I've always... I've always loved those words out of John 1. Where the apostle John says... Um, he came into the world and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. Imagine for a moment what it must have been like for the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory, 
to live among fallen men and women like us who didn't know that he was the Lord of glory by nature, couldn't see anything in him that made him look different than anybody else, not recognizing that this was the maker of the heavens and the earth, the one who calls the stars by their names. Um, what, a, what an experience that must have been for the Lord. What humiliation to have to, if I can say this just in a colloquial way, to rub shoulders with sinners who didn't recognize that he was their maker, that he was the savior. And Paul says that in the gospel, Christ descends from David. God is fulfilling his promise to raise up a king who's going to rule over the nations. And yet, notice this, the second stage is he was raised from the dead and he is now declared to be the son of God with power. By the way, we sometimes can inappropriately think of Jesus as this weak, just this weak moralistic teacher. That's what so many stained windows say. That's what so many books That's what television shows try to say. Let me say this this morning. There is nothing weak about the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus will rise from the dead and he will say to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. All authority, all power. That Now listen very carefully. Not just as God, but as a glorified man and the head of a redeemed humanity. That's amazing. Right now, the Lord Jesus is the glorified, risen God-man who has all power over heaven and earth. That means that if you're trusting in him, your Savior, the Eternal Son, has so united himself to you that he is representing redeemed humanity from the throne while he rules and reigns over everything. And listen very carefully, that is good news if he's redeemed us. That is good news. He is representing us. He has all power. He has given us the spirit of holiness. He has poured his spirit out on his people. He has said, I'm not just going to come and be like them. I am going to dwell in them. And I'm going to give them from my fullness. I am going to transform them into my image. I'm going to renew them by my power through the spirit of holiness because of my resurrection. We don't meditate often enough on the fact that the same power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead is the same power that God reserves in Christ to work in you and me. My, how our lives would be different if we recognize that the same power God worked in raising Jesus from the dead is the same power that he works in believers every day as we trust in him. I want us just very briefly to look at the scope, finally, of the gospel. We've considered the servant, the source, the substance. And now the scope. Notice Paul picks back up on his ministry, and in verse 5 he says, "...through whom we have received grace and apostleship." to bring about obedience to the faith or the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Who is the gospel for? Everyone. Who is the gospel for? All the nations. Anyone who will believe in the Lord Jesus. By the way, this is another, this is another verifying evidence of the truthfulness of Christianity. A religion that can't reach 
to every corner of the globe and be for every man, woman, and boy and girl irrespective, regardless of their status in life, regardless of who they are or their ethnicity or whatever else they think they have about themselves. A religion that can't do that is not a true religion. And yet God had promised Abraham, I am going to give you a seed, and in that seed all the nations are going to be blessed. And Paul says, listen, the scope of this gospel is so great that it encompasses every nation on earth. Maybe you've heard those stories. I was reminded of this this week that there were stories in the 1950s of missionaries and before that even in the 19th century going to indigenous tribes and bringing the gospel. And it was very common. It was very common um, after some of those tribesmen and women received the gospel and trusted in Christ for them to say, when did this happen? And those missionaries would say, well, it happened, it happened 1,600 years ago. It happened 1,800 years ago. It happened 1,950 years ago. And they would respond by saying, why did it take you so long to tell us? Why did it take you so long to tell us? You see, the point of that is that if we really believe the Gospels for the nations then our heart, like Paul's, is going to be a desire to give ourselves to the spread of the gospel so that the scope of the gospel is manifested in this world. I'm going to say something very important this morning, and then I'm going to wrap up because I could, I told you Lloyd-Jones did 13, and I'm doing one, so this is it. But, but, I read an article this morning. I'm going to say this very cautiously because I don't want to critique him heavily by Tim Keller asking whether our country can ever embrace Christianity again. And, and it's a good article so far as it goes, but let, let me just say this this morning. If you and I don't have the confidence that Paul had, that the gospel's for the nations, then whenever society starts to crumble around us and starts to hate Christianity and the gospel and the moorings start to come undone and the foundations start to crumble, we're going to be like, oh no, I mean, can America ever embrace the gospel again? Listen, if we're not confident in the scope of the gospel, we're not going to be living confident that God is at work in the nations, in the nations, in this nation. Look, dare I say it, in North Korea. You know, there are Christians in North Korea. I don't know how they, they, they can function and survive, but there are Christians in Cambodia. It's a very, very very dark country. There are Christians in Somalia. There are Christians in Venezuela. There are Christians in China. There are Christians in Russia. There are true believers in the various nations of this world because God promised that the gospel was going to be for all the nations. And I'm going to say this this morning. We had better get that same vision of the scope that the Apostle Paul had or else we are going to forget that the gospel is for us. You know, I said this to somebody the other day. Whenever I have to engage in a very difficult pastoral situation that's ongoing for a long time, and our tendency is often to say, you know, she's never going to change. He's never going to change. Maybe you've said that yourself. The second we say that is the second we say the gospel can't change me. Do you understand that? The second you say... 
she's never going to change. He's never going to change. It's the second that you have said, I don't believe the gospel works. Because if it can't change that person in whatever nation they live in, then it can't change you. And it can't work in your life. I want to close. I want to close with Luther's quote at the beginning of his preface to his commentary on Romans again as we walk out here this morning. And there's going to be a lot of theology. There's going to be a lot of difficult portions to this book. I want to encourage you to read it while we go through it. And again, Luther says this. This letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is pure gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word, but to occupy himself or herself with it daily, as though it were the daily bread of the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes, and the better it tastes. My hope as we go through this is that that will be true for us, that we will get a better grasp of the gospel, that we will receive it as good news to me, and that we will cling to Christ, who is the substance of the gospel. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you for this marvelous book. We thank you for the work that you did in the Apostle Paul. We thank you for the testimony of his life. We thank you, above all, though, Lord, for the good news of the gospel of your son. We thank you for his humiliation and exaltation. We thank you for the free salvation we have by grace alone, through faith alone in him. We pray that you would astonish us afresh with the gospel. We pray also that you would give us the greatest confidence, our God, that the gospel is for the nations. And that we would give our lives, our time, our service, our money, our affections and desires in seeing the good news propagated for the salvation of men and women across the face of the earth. And so, Father in heaven, would you work in us mightily to this end. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.